So many news articles, documentaries, TV shows, and radio pieces have focused on the opioid epidemic in America. This nationwide epidemic, stemming in large part from the major push of opioids like OxyContin starting in the 1990s, kills tens of thousands of Americans annually. That's just deaths, which is something we can measure. The true effect of this wide-reaching crisis stretches far beyond calculable figures. Yet despite the epic scale of this problem, addiction is still stigmatized in a way unlike almost any other type of illness. It's because of the stigmatization that good health treatment for substance use disorder is sparse in comparison to the size of the issue, and coverage for this treatment is even more out of reach for most people suffering with the illness. Not only do many people think of NA and AA meetings as a standard treatment for addiction, it's often the only treatment many people suffering from substance use disorder receive. But support groups like this, as helpful as they can be, can't be a substitute for medical care. Instead, if the promise of mental health parity is to be fulfilled, we need to ensure that all Americans have access to good substance use disorder treatment at all levels of care. And to do so, we have to fight back against the shame and the blame associated with this disorder. This month on Arisa Watch, Stigma and Substance Use Disorder. I think sometimes in the great web of the societal problem, we lose sight of the stories of the individuals who suffer from addiction and the stories of their loved ones. I believe it's through these stories, through the faces and voices of people affected, that we generate real compassion, and with that compassion, enact real change. Today, I'm going to speak with my colleague, Elizabeth Green, and her client, Liz Pyers, advocate and mother. Liz lost both of her children, Megan and Matthew, from substance use disorder. I just want to get this out of the way for everyone listening. Yes, we're all three Elizabeths. Um, Elizabeth and Liz Pyers, thank you both for joining me today. Liz, can you start off by sharing your story, really Megan and Matthew's story? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, you know, I, like most families or parents, uh, had two kids, a, a boy and a girl that were perfectly normal and healthy growing up and had no issues. You know, in the teen years, they they did experiment with substance use with their friends. And unfortunately, what we've later learned is that they both did have the brain disease substance use disorder. And my daughter actually approached us when she was a junior in high school and asked for help. She told us she had a problem. She'd been using heroin and needed help. And we were shocked. We had no idea. We thought, you know, we knew she was using pot and and stuff like that, but had no idea it was to that level. We didn't know what what to do to help her, honestly, because it was something outside of our area of expertise. And so we reached out to experts in the field. You know, it's not like you can go to your neighbor and ask, like, you know, how's how's it going with your kids' drug use and stuff? And what do you do? There's a lot of negative stigma around it and people are not comfortable talking about it. 
And so we did reach out to a few people that we knew that had some challenges um, to get some references on who are you supposed to seek help from when you have this kind of situation. And so we did get connected with an education consultant, some doctors and things that specialized in addiction and substance use disorder to figure out the kind of help that she needed. After they did some, I guess, some work uh, with the family and talking and interviewing to different people, they let us know that she needed an intensive intervention, of which we did not know what that meant or what that was, um, and later found out that they were recommending a wilderness program for her, of which we did not know anything about either, and it was sending her to another state and all of this stuff that we were mortified about, but we wanted to listen to what the experts had to say and try to get her the help that she needed. And it was very quick at that point that we discovered that insurance doesn't want to pay for their care. And to get the right treatment that the doctors recommended required that we pay out of pocket. So we ended up taking a second mortgage on our home to try to pay for this treatment. And you don't really realize how expensive it is at the time that you start on this journey so we got involved in that to try to get her the best care possible because, you know, we wanted her to have every chance to try to overcome this. And it was one thing after another. So we didn't realize that it was like a long-term thing and that she would need one care after another. And so we, we did end up doing that and we put her through different treatments and she was sober and in a recovery and an outpatient program by this point for about five and a half months when uh, she went through some life challenges and returned to using and it was too much for her and ended up, she ended up overdosing and it was very fast and tragic. And so, the, and through my daughter's treatment, we actually learned about my son having the issue as well. We suspected something was going on with him, but again, we didn't know exactly either. And then he, uh, we did end up, uh, getting him to go into some uh, treatment to maintain uh, recovery. And by the time he did it, which was probably a year later, we, uh, we, we had learned more through this process that they really need at least a year of ongoing treatment and support. And when you look at the insurance, they want to maybe approve seven days, partial, inpatient, outpatient. It's all these various combinations of things. And so, you know, it's really expensive, uh, even if you have good insurance, to try to get them the right care and treatment that they need. So um, he did go through a longer period of treatment. By then, he was 19. And so he was not at an age where a parent could force him. He had to elect to do it on his own. But there are things that parents can do to encourage their children who may have a, an issue to, to get the support that they need um, by helping, you know, showing compassion and making sure that they understand that you are still there to support them, but with the right behaviors that you don't want to support the bad behaviors. And so he ended up going into treatment and he did do an extended period. He probably did about a 10 month period. And uh, then he ended up moving back to Austin, which is where we were from originally. We were living in California at this time. And then last year with COVID effects and life happening and he was doing well and had been in, he had just been in recovery for three years on June the 21st. 
Um, he was, uh, you know, partying with his friends and then that escalated to some drug use and then he couldn't find what he was looking for and somebody offered heroin. And he had originally, you know, after we lost my daughter, you know, his sister, they were best friends. He swore to never use it again. But that just shows you how strong of a power it has over you. And it's very hard to break that pattern in the brain. And so he someone ended up offering him that he rejected it at first. But then when he couldn't find the other stuff they were looking for, he ended up doing the heroin. And um, it was, again, I guess, too much for his body at that time because he'd been sober from it for three years. And uh, we lost him as well, June 27th of 2020. I'm so, so sorry to hear this. I know your story, and yet it's just absolutely heartbreaking to hear. And I can't imagine what you've you've been through. Elizabeth, I, I want to ask you how you met Liz and, and how you ended up getting involved here, if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, Liz came to me with issues about getting her insurance claims paid for Megan. And um, we worked on those. Um, I think what's important is that the story of the treatment and the insurance is not unique. It's unfortunately pretty commonplace that insurance companies are not paying for the treatment that's recommended by patients' doctors and that the trajectory of that treatment isn't necessarily linear. You know, the disease itself isn't. There can be stops and starts and, and progress like Matthew had and then a relapse is not uncommon. And unfortunately, it kind of just shows us how precarious life is, you know, that for both of them, one move um, just changed everything. You know, insurance companies really don't like to pay for the end of treatment. Like they pay a little bit, you know, but then once someone moves down to an intensive outpatient program, which is what um, Megan was in when she passed away. Um, and that treatment was denied. You know, they assume you should be better. You should be on your way to recovery. And I think that it's really important that that lower level of treatment is paid for as well, because it shows that that's a really sensitive time period as well. It's not really just in the beginning, but it's also when she was trying to reintegrate into her life and get a job and go to school and all these things and at the same time, trying to maintain her recovery, that ended up being um, a really pivotal moment for her. And that's when insurance wouldn't pay. And it actually cost the least of all the treatment. Yeah. And I second what you say about how this isn't sort of cut and paste. This isn't linear. And so in a lot of ways, I think treatment for substance use disorder, as well as other kinds of mental health disorders, it doesn't really fit into the mold that insurers use, which is maybe based on averages or pulled out of um, out of sort of wishful thinking, but that, you know, it requires a lot of individualized thought about what the proper treatment is. And, and you know, as Liz pointed out, it can require and almost always does require very extended treatment to really get to full recovery. I want to throw this back at, at Liz, I guess. Uh, I imagine you must have a lot of thoughts about ways in which your children's health care and especially sort of the coverage of their health care treatment could have been handled differently. 
um, that may have led to a different outcome. Can you speak a little bit more about that, like what you think went wrong with the, the coverage of their treatment? And and also, I, I know you talked to me about it a week or so ago when I spoke to you a little bit about sort of the financial impact as well as the impact that can't even be measured on, on your family. But could you talk about those things a little bit, Liz? Yeah. So, uh, it, yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it is um, frustrating, disheartening uh, when you, you have it, when you have insurance and it won't do what the doctors and the medical experts are recommending. So, um, I think I would, uh, you know, there's there's no um, tr- recovery treatment for dummies one hundred and one that works for every single person. It's a custom plan curated specific for whatever each individual situation is and what their need and their care is. And so um, insurance wants to interject what they are willing to pay um, versus what an individual needs for their treatment. So that part uh, was very frustrating. And I think that was how I originally um, ended up meeting Elizabeth Green was um, I was so frustrated that we had lost my daughter and just felt like if she had gotten the care and treatment that was recommended by the medical professional, that she might be alive today. And so that that is a very hard pill to swallow. And so it really got me frustrated and angry and upset with the insurance companies. And it's like they say whatever they're willing to do and your loved one's life is in their hands and jeopardy. And if you can't afford the treatment and stuff that they need, you're losing your loved ones uh, in the process. So my daughter was young at the time and she had so much potential and she had her whole life ahead of her. And so we were trying to do everything that we could to help her get control of this and, and maintain recovery for an extended period. So we were trying to do what the doctors and medical professionals recommended. And so we did take out a second mortgage on the house and, um, you know, that only got us so far. And then when we found out my son had the issue, um, you know, we had to kind of split the treatment between the two of them. And one of the follow-on treatments that was recommended by the medical professionals was for her to go to a residential treatment center for a year that cost $10,000 a month that was not covered by insurance. And we didn't have the ability to do that at that time. And that is something that I do wonder about if we had done that, would it have been a different outcome? And then we obviously wanted to support my son as well. And so we were kind of having to split what we could between the two of them to try to get him the care that he needed, which we knew was even more by, by that point um, than my daughter had gotten because of how serious of a illness and disease that this is. And, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up having to sell our house to pay for the second mortgage because it was, you know, well over a quarter of a million dollars um, in, in treatment care that was out of our pocket because insurance wouldn't pay. Well, something is really broken in our system where, um, you know, it turns out that that your kids didn't get all the treatment probably that they needed and that was recommended by their doctors. And yet you ended up with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. 
And your story's not unique. It's what often happens with people that have some resources, but frankly, very few people would have enough resources to pay for long-term treatment that people might need. And for people that don't have any resources, they end up getting no treatment at all or very little. It's really shocking to me. This is something that Elizabeth deals with at our firm. I deal with at our, our firm, and yet it still shocks me every time. I understand you've, you're engaged in a lot of advocacy work now on these issues, both with your website, um, lastoverdose.org, and, and with the Matthew and Megan Endowed Excellence Fund. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about either or both of, of those. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. If you don't have any resources, you, you don't even have a fighting chance, right? And as a society, I, I think that we can do better. And the reason that I am so passionate about trying to impact laws, whatever is needed to change the way our system currently works, because Someone with substance use disorder, it's a disease just like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and nobody wants any of them. But the others are treated and covered under insurance, but this one is still not. And so everyone should have a right to getting the care and treatment they need to try to be a productive citizen in society. And the reason that I want to try to do something about this and change this, there's so much negative stigma around it. And it's really comes from a point of misinformation or education about the topic. They don't have a choice in the matter if they have this disease. They may have had a choice when they first tried the substances with their friends, just like everyone else. The problem is, is that you don't know who is going to get the disease and it's going to become a problem and destroy their life and families around them. So they need to have access to the same levels of care that someone with diabetes, cancer, heart disease, all of that does without all of the negative stigma that goes around it. And so I'm very passionate about trying to change this so that no other family has to endure what my family has had to endure. Losing one child is bad enough. Losing both of them is just unimaginable. And it has forever changed our lives. And, you know, I want to do something to try to prevent that from happening to others and make something good come out of something extremely tragic. So we did create an endowment in their name through the Steve Hicks School of Social Work at the University of Texas in Austin. And it's really designed to provide a stipend for students graduating with their master's and bachelor's in the social field to do their internship in the field of addiction, mental health, recovery, so that they can go on and it'll inspire them to have a lifelong career in the field and help us throughout the years and decades and generations to change this negative stigma, change the policies with insurance, with the criminal justice system, everything. There, there's so many facets of it that it's not going to happen in my lifetime, but I wanted to try to plant the seed out there to continue to inspire other people to make good with this and make a positive difference to make sure that these people can get the support they need. So we just want to make sure that we're supporting long-term. And so this will go on uh, in perpetuity 
to continue to fund and, and encourage students graduating to go into this field to continue to make that difference because it's a long-term thing that's needed. It's not going to happen overnight. That's really wonderful of you to have tried to turn a tragedy into something good and have something, um, you know, really important come out of it. Um, personally, I, I couldn't agree with you more that removing stigma and really increasing empathy around these issues is a really important first step in improving access to care and treatment for people suffering from substance use disorders. And I really, really want to thank you both for joining me to discuss this important topic and even more importantly, for being such powerful voices for change. Thank you both. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Unfortunately, Liz's story is not an unusual one. In 2020, there were a record number of 93,331 overdose deaths with a large percentage of those deaths being people under 25 years old. So Liz's story is not unusual, but it is unspeakably tragic, a loss that's painful to even think about and impossible to fathom. Despite what she suffered, Liz contacted me after I interviewed her and said that she felt she hadn't said something clearly enough. She wanted me to stress that her kids were not bad people, they just had a terrible disease. I think this speaks volumes about how judged people with substance use disorders and their families feel. We as a society need to do better. We have to fight whatever impulse we have to judge or to turn away from the problem. We have to dig deep into our compassion and we have to muster the will and the resources to really address these problems through law and policy changes, research and treatment, and maybe, above all, by rejecting the impulse to stigmatize. Today's episode was brought to you by Cantor & Cantor. Our producer is Emily Hopkins. Our engineer and composer is Andrew Payson. Special thanks to Liz Pyers and Elizabeth Green. I'm Elizabeth Hopkins. See you next time.